Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Lisa Marie Imray. If this is your first episode tuning in, hello and welcome. It's great to have you here listening in with us. Each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk about a true crime story. So if you're interested in true crime or drinking coffee, then hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. That way then you won't miss an episode. This podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music. So last week we looked into our first unsolved murder case. And a quick little shout out to my Spotify listeners. Hey guys, how you doing? Thank you to everyone who responded to the question that was uploaded with the episode. I've loved talking to you guys about your thoughts and your theories about the case. And just a very quick thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast, who subscribes, who sends messages in of support and feedback, recommendations. I am beyond grateful for every message that comes through so please continue to do so if you see fit but I will stop talking now and get on to this week's episode which is the mass murder of the List family and how the the bad guy John List how he almost got away with it so let's get into it. Warning the following episode contains discussion of alcohol and substance abuse, verbal and psychological abuse, suicide and murder that listeners may find disturbing. The podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. So as per usual, I'm going to start today's episode with a bit of backstory. Let's find out all about our bad guy. Uh, I am going to warn you it is a little bit all over the shop so there are a fair few dates a fair few locations and a fair few guys called John in this story so I'm going to do my absolute best to make it as crystal clear as to when I'm talking about where I'm talking about and who I'm talking about so and that being said let's get on with it so, John, John Emil List, our bad guy for today's story. John was born September 17th, 1925 in Michigan. His mother was Alma Barbara Florence List and his father was John Frederick List. They were German-American, they were Lutherans, they had a huge age gap. <laughs> his mother was 38 at the time that John was born and his father was 66. But the best part of all, they were first cousins. First cousins. <laughs> and his mother, Alma, didn't even need to change her last name when they got married. They were married, first cousins, having a baby. What a great start to the story. <laughs> There's nothing too much specifically about John's childhood that I could find. Uh, it was noted that he was raised in a very strict, very religious household. Um, like I said, his family was a Lutheran family um, and his father held him to a very high standard and his mom doted on him. He was a bit of a mama's boy. Anyway, 
later in life. So now John graduated high school in 1942. After he turned 18 in 1943, he enlisted into the army as a laboratory technician, served during World War II. His father died in 1944 and left. he left the army in 1946. He then went on to obtain a degree in business, a bachelor's degree in business, sorry, and a master's degree in accounting. So John was a pretty clever cookie. That's a shit ton of math. Anyway, in 1950, John got recalled back to the army as the Korean War began to escalate. He worked at Fort Eustis, again, more behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. They put his accounting uh, education to use. They put his brain to use rather than putting him on the front lines. So he was in Fort Eustis in Virginia in 1951, and this is where he met Helen Morris Taylor. Helen Morris was born 1st of January 1925. She was nine months older than John. In 1941, at 16 years old, Helen married 23-year-old Marvin Everett Taylor. This made her Helen Morris Taylor. And shortly after the wedding, the couple welcomed Brenda Joyce. Now, I'm going to speculate that this was a shotgun wedding. I think Marvin and Helen had a little too much fun. And then they had to get married. Say what you will. Maybe you disagree. I don't know. I don't know. I ain't saying anything. It has been neither confirmed nor denied. In 1944, Kenneth Everett Taylor was born. He was their second child, but unfortunately Kenneth died when he was only two months old. And I couldn't find out how, but it's really sad. So Marvin, yes, he was in the army. He rose through the ranks. He was a second lieutenant. I assume that's a big deal. I don't know the army ranks. I do apologize. However, in early of 1951, second Lieutenant Marvin Everett Taylor was killed in action in the Korean War. So Helen is now a widow. Brenda, who's about nine years old, is fatherless. But Marvin, however, he, oh my goodness, he was decorated. He got the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, Combat Infantryman's Badge, Korean Service Medal, United Nations Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Korean Presidential Unit Citation, and the Republic of Korea War Service Medal. I don't think there are any more medals to give to anyone else <laughs> like that. I don't even know how many that was. He served his country, and I have a hunch that he did a bloody good job of it. But Unfortunately, yes, he did die. Helen's now a widow. Brenda is fatherless. But that is why Helen was on the army scene, if you will, in 1951, where she met John. In December of 1951, like eight months after Marvin had died, John and Helen got married. Yep, they tied the knot in Baltimore, Maryland. And yeah, I know you're thinking it. It's pretty quick on the marriage rebound. I tried to find whatever I could about John and Helen's kind of pre-marriage life together. There was no pre-marriage life, so there was nothing really to find. <laughs> I don't know if they were this like couple that were just madly in love with each other or whether they were convenient for each other. I, I really don't know. Some accounts say that Helen 
slept with John because he showed an interest in her and then faked a pregnancy to lock him in because now she's a widow and a single mom. She needs to provide for her child, right? But, I mean, I think John probably did like Helen and he took her on a few dates and... But yeah, who knows why they got married so quick. But anyway, they're married. And John had to relocate for the army. They wanted him to go to California to work for the finance corps. These are people who pay everyone in the army. So his accounting background helped with that. So this was in California. So they moved from Maryland to California, which is a 41-hour drive by the way. Remember, if you listened to last week's episode, I said how I was terrible at geography. Yeah, well, I still am. So I get really like shocked about how big America is and the fact that it takes 41 hours to drive from one place to another. Whoa. Uh, after finishing his army career in 1952, sorry, John relocated himself, Helen and Brenda back to his hometown of Michigan and California to Michigan is a 35 hour drive. (laughs) I know that I sound so dumb when I laugh about these things because I'm so shocked, but I'm learning something and I hope you learn something with me, right? (laughs) So from 1952 to 1960, John worked as an accountant for a paper company in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I like saying that word, Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo. Uh, In this time, he rose through the ranks in the paper company and he ended up becoming the general supervisor of the accounting department. Also in this time, he had three kids with Helen. So... In 1955, Patricia Morris List was born. In 1956, John Frederick Jr. List was born. And in 1958, Frederick Michael List was born. So we've got another John added to the mix now. I will refer to the son as John Jr. And I will keep calling our bad guy for today, John. Hopefully I will keep that clear and not confuse anyone. (laughs) In 1960, Brenda... Helen's child from her first marriage, she got married and left home. She was 19. Good on her. The family of five, now that it's John, Helen, and their three children, they moved to New York in 1960, which is where John took a job with Xerox. That's a company I know about. Like, do you recognize that name? Because I do. So they've been around for a while, obviously. New York is only like five and a half hours away from Michigan, so it's it's like a hop, skip, and a jump <laughs> compared to the other two moves. Uh, he became the director of accounting at Xerox. He had a good job. He did have a good job. After five years, so now in 1965, the family had to move again. Shocker. <laughs> can't keep up with them really uh they moved six hours away to westfield new jersey now westfield new jersey is only about two and a half hours away from maryland where john and helen got married so they they've just about done a full circle (laughs) this was not a good case for me to take on as someone who's so terrible at geography (laughs) anyway they moved to new jersey because john 
accepted a position as vice president of a bank. So not only was John a clever cookie, but he had the dollar bills to go with it. And he was quite wealthy, in fact, that John bought one of the most expensive houses in one of the most expensive parts of town. He bought a 19-room Victorian mansion with a ballroom and Tiffany skylights, marble fireplaces and a bit of land. He bought the biggest and the best, right? It's a little bit excessive. Come on, uh, 19 rooms for a family of five? It's insane. So, it's, no, nah, it's it's too, it's excessive. Not long after they moved in, Alma, John's mother, she wanted to come and live with the family. She was older, she needed looking after, and John was like, yeah, mom, of course, I'm sure we could find you some room in our house. I'm sure you could find some room. Um, And that is actually where we're up to. So 1965, the List family are in New Jersey, joined by Grandma Alma. And yeah, to quickly summarize everything, because I know that was all over the shop. The family moved lots. John kept finding different work. His name's John and his father's name's John and his son's called John. So like everyone's called John. Are we good? We good. So the List family are now in this new community and from the outside looking in, they were this ideal, picture-perfect American family with John being the provider for the family. He's going out and working. Helen was never seen anywhere because she was a good stay-at-home wife and mother. And Patricia, John Jr. and Frederick, they went to school. They were polite. They were good kids. So people didn't mind that they had moved into the community. They weren't causing any trouble. They attended church service every week without fail at the Redeemer Lutheran Church and John became the Sunday school teacher. So they moved in, they bought a big ass house and people kind of respected that, I guess. They did keep to themselves. They were a bit of a shy family. They just kind of went to church and then stayed at home. The kids do did do some extracurricular activities for school, but other than that, they were just at home. In my opinion, they're probably cleaning the bloody place. Can you imagine the list of chores for a 19-room mansion? But as with anyone, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Even if someone may look perfect, you don't know what's going on behind the facade. So let me tell you, what are the dark secrets that lay behind the Victorian mansion doors? So, Helen. Helen, Helen, Helen. Helen wasn't seen that much in public. She was only seen at church. But other than that, nothing. Like, nobody nobody saw her. She just stayed at home. John did grocery shopping most of the time. All the kids did it. Helen wasn't seen a lot, and one of the main reasons behind this is because Helen actually became an alcoholic after all of her children were born. She's got three kids, she's moving all over the bloody country. I don't blame her. (laughs) I feel like I need a drink and I'm just reading about the story. (laughs) No, uh, no, I shouldn't laugh because the reason is actually quite sad. So Helen 
I had to start taking some pretty serious medication. She was suffering from a debilitating brain disease called cerebral atrophy. In very simple terms, this is the loss of brain cells. It's the breakdown of connections between the neurons in the brain. And I think she just became dependent on the medication as well as alcohol to help with whatever pain she was going through. But also, because of the alcohol, because of the medication and the disease she was suffering from, her personality changed, right? She apparently became this very dominant, very argumentative and controlling person. Because, like I said, she wasn't seen that often in public, people noticed this personality shift. They saw that she was starting to like insult John she would throw these comments at him when they were out again, not very once, maybe twice a week they were seen and people would see that she was just abusing John. She would say John was not the man that her first husband was. John was not a brave soldier. He was a weak, feeble little man. She would also start saying that he was inadequate in the bedroom, that John was not satisfying her as a married woman, you do not go around airing your dirty laundry or you do not go talking about your sex life with your husband out in public, right? Like, damn, Helen. (laughs) Obviously, it's very sad that from what she was suffering from and then, but then she just, whoa, she was brutal. She did not hold back. So John was dealing with a lot of abuse from his wife and he realized that people were noticing this and they were trying to see how John was reacting. Now, John was never described as a violent person. He was described as a very mild-mannered, very timid, shy, reserved kind of guy. Probably too reserved because he just wasn't good with people. He avoided small talk he was a bit rude, like can be quite blunt to the point where it's quite rude. Uh, apparently this is like one of the main reasons why he kept changing jobs. People would complain that he was like abrupt, he was unapproachable and that he was a bit of a dick because he was just rude, right? So everyone was like, okay, John, this is pretty heavy stuff you're dealing with. How are, How are you dealing with it? Uh, not in the best way, he started taking his frustrations out on his kids. So let's talk about the kids. So Frederick Michael List, the youngest child, the baby of the family. Uh, Look, I'll be super honest, not a lot about him, who he was as a person, I guess. Like what he liked or what he disliked or, or how he was perceived in the community. I don't know. There wasn't much about Frederick. I feel like if he was super naughty or a troublemaker, I probably would have found some things. So I I can only assume that Frederick was a good kid. He had friends and people liked him. Moving up to John Jr., Fred's the middle child. Now, you know how people say the middle child is like usually forgotten about? I'm a middle child. I feel this. No, John Jr. was John's favorite child and he made sure everyone knew it right? John Jr. He was liked at school. He played football or soccer for 
the people who don't call it football. Um, and he was quite good. John would go and watch him play. And he was a good kid. He rode his bike around the neighbourhood and even volunteered to deliver newspapers. So people like John Jr. Patricia. Patty, 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 Patricia. So Patricia had a solid group of friends at school. She enjoyed going to school. She did well in her classes. She tried to stay out of trouble for the most part. Uh, but we'll get to that. And Patricia had a passion for drama acting, performing on stage, and she aspired to be an actress. So it's 1971. The Liss family are well integrated into the Westfield community. John was still dealing with Helen and all of her issues, but now he was starting to get a bit of uh, pushback from Patricia. Patricia wanted more freedom. She wanted to pursue this dream of acting like a lot more seriously she also wanted to hang out with her friends. She was like 15 years old, for goodness sake. But John, John was like, nah. He said, you can go to rehearsal because it's for like school stuff. But then you come home. Even though she did this, John was still convinced that Patricia was doing weed and cocaine and drinking at these quote unquote rehearsals. <laughs> he was aware that her friend group was a mixture of girls and boys, so he was just not happy with how Patricia was starting to live her life. He associated, you know, Hollywood and acting and that kind of industry with drugs, sex and alcohol, which we kind of know now to be kind of true. <laughs> so, But Patricia was a teenager and she didn't want to listen to her dad. She didn't want to live by his rules. I feel like that's relatable. That's relatable. Uh, towards the end of 1971, John's behavior towards his kids changed. Like, so he was, he just started tightening the reins. He just started snapping at them a lot more. But one day, something very strange happened. So he sat the kids down and he was having a, like a religious chat with them, a religious talk. And he actually asked the kids how they wanted to be handled after they died. Did they want to be buried or cremated? Was there anything in particular they wanted to be buried with? Like, weird to ask your kids because, you know, natural way of life. Your parents should die before you do. Like, it was just an odd question. John thought he was being clever by incorporating it into, like, a religious talk. So John Jr. and Frederick didn't think much of it, but Patricia... She got suspicious of her dad. She was, yeah, she had a feeling something was going on and she was upset and scared to go home because of this conversation. She was being dropped home after rehearsal one day by her drama teacher, Edwin Iliano. Remember that name, he is important. Uh, when they pulled up to the house, she started getting upset and he asked her what's going on and she said to her teacher, I think my dad's going to kill me. Now, her teacher is a grown-up and he probably just saw this as like a teenager overreaction, you know, when it's like, oh, I forgot to take the chicken out the freezer, mum's going to be home, oh, she's going to kill me, you know, that kind of thing, like, oh, I messed up, my parents going to kill me. This is what Edwin Edwin Eliano saw this as, and he said to her, like, look, 
it'll be okay, you'll be alright, whatever you've done, it's all good, yeah, he was wrong, and he had no idea how right that she was. November 9th, 1971, this is it team, it started off like any other normal day, John got up, the kids got up, they got ready for work and school, John dropped them off at school and said to them, you know, be home after school, don't be late. John Jr. had a football game scheduled for after school that day, which John told him that he would come and watch. Instead of going to work, John returned home. From his glove box, John retrieved a 9mm semi-automatic handgun, went inside the house, went to his office where he kept a .22 caliber revolver, which was from his time in the army. Taking both guns, he went to the kitchen where Helen was having her morning cup of coffee and John shot her in the back of the head, killing her instantly. She dropped to the floor, but John left her there. He then proceeded to go up to the third floor where his mother, Alma, she had like a little apartment set up up there. She had a bathroom, a kitchenette type thing. Anyway, John walked up there to see Alma. Alma said, like, what was that about? What was that noise? John leant down and kissed her on the forehead. And then he shot her in the face. She fell off the bed. She broke a few bones as she fell out of bed. John tried to roll her onto a carpet runner to bring downstairs, but she was just too heavy for him to move. So Alma was left like half dragged out of her bedroom. John returned downstairs and dragged his wife's body from the kitchen to the ballroom. Uh, He laid out sleeping bags and placed her body on top. He then cleaned up the bloody mess of the trail from the kitchen to the dining room, oh, to the ballroom, sorry, the bloody mess on his hands and he, because he didn't want his kids to pick up something was going on when they returned home from school. John then actually got a phone call from the school that saying that Patricia was not feeling well and he had to go and pick her up. So he went and picked up Patricia. Upon returning home, John shot his daughter in the back of the head and placed her body next to her mother. Patricia was 16 years old. Frederick returned home after school and he was met with the same fate. He was shot and his body was moved to the ballroom. He was 13 years old. John then made himself a sandwich. The damn bastard had just killed his 13-year-old son and his 16-year-old daughter. And he was hungry, so he made some lunch. Then he went to the post office to cancel the family's milk, mail, and uh, like newspaper deliveries. He then went to the school because he was going to go watch John Jr. play football. While at the school, he told the administration office like the kids weren't going to be at school for a couple of weeks. He told them that they were going to go to North Carolina to visit Helen's mother, who was sick. And, you know, the kids aren't going to be here. So that's cool. John then went to watch John Jr.'s football game, cheered him on, then drove him home. Once they got home, John shot John Jr. However, it was a misfire and he got John Jr. in the chest. 
he did not die instantly. Instead, he tried to fight his dad and, like, grab the guns off him. Unfortunately, John Jr. was not successful and John shot him in the face. When John Jr. fell to the floor, John... I know, I'm so sorry, this is confusing. So when John Jr. fell to the floor, John thought he saw him move or twitch. So he shot John Jr. over and over and over again, like at least 10 times. John Jr. was 15 years old. After positioning the bodies in the ballroom, John then cleaned up the mess. He then went to his office and he began to write a letter, which we'll get around to in a second. Then he went around the entire mansion and he cut his face out of any and all photographs he could find. Then John... He went to bed. He said that he had one of like the best sleep he's had in a very, very long time. The next morning, November 10th, John turned on all the lights in the house. He turned the AC all the way down so it was like the coldest temperature in the house. And he turned on the radio to the religious hymn station. And then John Emil List left the Victorian mansion. Because John had spun these lies about the family going to North Carolina for a few weeks, unfortunately, the bodies weren't discovered for a whole month. Like, it wasn't until early December of 1971 where neighbours very briefly started to show some signs of concern. Like, they would notice that the lights in the house would start flickering to and then turning it off, like the light bulbs were overheating and then bursting having the lights and the music on in the house when you've gone away on holiday was actually common practice kind of like to deter burglars and like people robbing the house but it was just weird with how long they were gone for uh remember i said earlier the the list family everyone knew that they just kept to themselves so another contributing factor as to why nobody thought much of it earlier on, you know what I mean? Uh, It wasn't until Edwin Iliano, do you remember his name? Patricia's drama teacher. He was the one who had enough concern to actually go to the house. So let's have a quick chat about Ed Iliano. Uh, Ed was Patricia's drama school teacher. Um, I don't know how I feel about this guy. I think he is a little bit of a shady character. I think he thinks too highly of himself. (laughs) Um, After all this was kind of, you know, done and, and whatnot, and he did lots of interviews, he even made a movie about her. He always made it come across like she was this uh, student that was so in love with her teacher and he was so like gentlemanlike and you know refused her um, advances I kind of think it was probably the other way around <laughs> just because of how much he was kind of pushing that narrative that she was so in love with him you know what I mean like yeah it's mm, mm. anyway so Ed Iliano He was concerned about Patricia not being at school. Uh, She was the understudy for a lead role in the next school performance. And she was now gone for a real long time. So he apparently, 
he went by the house on December 5th, broke in through a window down by the basement, found the bodies, cried, left, and didn't tell anyone for two days. That doesn't really sound like something a person would do, but... He said later on, like, he was interviewed and said, why did, like, why did you keep it to yourself? And he said he didn't want to be caught breaking into the house and the reason being he was concerned over an underage girl. He thought that would look quite bad on him. I was thinking, bro, who the hell cares? You've just found the whole body, the whole family dead. Like, what the hell? Tell someone. But whether he did get, whether this was, like, seeking fame for him where he made up the story I mean it's very he was at the house on December 7th when the police were called but I don't know yeah I don't know if he was like seeking glory when he was like well I actually discovered them first you know what I mean regardless we are on December 7th the police are called to the house because apparently there's some guy walking around that guy was Ed Iliano. Officer George Zalaznik and Charles Haller were the first to arrive when they got the phone call from the the neighbor Roonies. They turned up, they saw Edwin there, they're like, what are you doing? And he said that he was concerned about the family, that they have been away for such a long time and things were starting to be feel weird about the house. He was worried about the kids. Like, just tried to play this, like, oh, I'm just worried, you know. (sighs) Sorry, I just do. I think he's a bit of a slimy character, this Edwin Iliano. Anyway, so the officers tried the front and back doors, but they were locked. They found the unlocked window. So maybe Edwin did break in earlier because he kind of suggested it. And that's what, like, police reports were kind of saying. Anyway, they climbed in. Inside the house, the officers described it as just creepy because the hymns were playing on the radio, which were kind of playing throughout the house. Like, they just said it was like it was haunted, right? Like, that actually would think about it. 19 room mansion, and you've got religious hymns being played. <laughs> like, that'd be freaking scary. The officers came to a set of curtains that blocked off the ballroom. Well, they pushed them aside and they found the family. The bodies were already decomposed. Um, remember I said, so John did turn off the heating and turned up the AC. So it was like real cold. But yeah, it still had been a month. So they continued to search the rest of the house. I can only imagine what that smell must have been like. Uh, the police found John's confession letter in the office He found the guns and a note that told them that his mother was upstairs and why he couldn't bring her down. So why did John do this? Why? The confession letter was addressed to the reverend at the Redeemer Luther Church. In this letter, he explained the reasons to his heinous crime. It turns out, Old Johnny Boy, he lost his job at the bank months ago due to quote-unquote personality clashes. So he was a dick at work again, right? 
he was embarrassed because he didn't want the family to move again. The kids were now growing up in this new place when they were making friends. He didn't want to move again. Uh, he So every day when he pretended to go to work, John would go to the train station and he would sit at the train station all day reading the newspaper, watching trains. Like he just, like what? He then would cash out money from his mother's bank account if he, you know, needed to for the bills. But unfortunately, like money was running out. The bank were about to repossess the house and John was like still struggling to find work. He did not want to be humiliated. He talked a lot about his upbringing, about how his father would pretty much say like, if you're not working, if you're not providing your failing, fail, failing, failing, uh, and he didn't want to be like that, like, he was so worried that he was going to be, like, the ultimate failure, so money, that was a huge side of it, but also, uh, he wanted his family to die as Christians, he started to believe that he was living with sinners, and he wanted his family to go to heaven. So he said that he would kill them so as they were still innocent. He said that he would have killed himself. But in his faith, you don't go to heaven if you kill yourself. Suicide was seen as a sin. So you wouldn't go to heaven. Um, he said that he would later on seek confession and like repent for his crimes so that he would be able to join his family and be reunited with them he let them know he said that the reason why he shot john jr so many times was because he didn't want him to suffer not because he had any sort of anger or like frustration he wanted to take out on him he said that he was like heartbroken to do this whatever uh he said that he knows what he did was wrong and again, just went back to, he wanted to make sure that his kids would go to heaven. Um, he left instructions for the bodies, for the burials, and he incorporated the answers that his kids gave him when he asked them that really random question. But he left no money for it. He left no money for the burials. Like he said that the kids needed to be um, buried here and they needed to be buried with this and with this, but left no money. So Helen and the kids were, oh, the church actually paid for a grave for them in the Westfield Cemetery. And Alma was taken back to Bay City in Michigan, which was her hometown to be married, uh, to be buried, sorry. John said that any books, clothes and things in the house just to be donated to libraries, schools, charity, but safe to say like nobody wanted anything from this guy nobody wanted anything from the house um yeah interesting it's a sick twisted view on how john wanted to save his family he saw no other way of doing it other than killing them it's yeah it's it's so odd because it was a huge shock to this community right like john i said earlier john was never known to be violent and now he's just shot all of his family like it's a complete 180 it's a complete surprise of a character because you just 
you would never have seen it coming. The police uh, ordered a manhunt for John because they didn't have any photographs of him. Remember, he cut his face out of all of them. He had to get descriptions from neighbours and from community members, and the news was published everywhere. The letter that was addressed to the Reverend, his name was Eugene Raywinkle. He then wrote a letter in response and published it in newspapers, asking John to contact him. And this blew up all over America. Everyone in America was looking for John. A short time later, the bodies were found. John's car was found at JFK Airport in New York. So police were like, oh, he's not even in the country anymore. But this was a false lead and there were actually no indications that he got on a plane. But it seemed as though John had vanished into thin air. In reality, what John did was he left his car at JFK Airport and he travelled on bus. It was a 40-hour bus ride from New York to Denver, Colorado. He took on a fake name. He became Robert Bob Clark. Robert was the name of someone who he actually went to college with but had no idea like of who the guy actually was like now. It's not like he was a friend or anything. Uh, so yeah, so he went to Denver, Colorado. He began working as an accountant because he didn't really know how to do anything else. He joined a local Lutheran church and he met a woman called Dolores Miller. Dolores and Robert slash John. I don't know what to call him. I'll call him Robert slash John. Uh, him and Dolores got married and settled in Virginia well, yeah, he's still working as an accountant. Like, he didn't really think he could switch it up. And this was Robert slash John's life from 1971 this is what's going on, but also if anyone had any information about any cases, about any criminals, the show had a tip line, and so they played the List family murder, and nine days later, Robert slash John, his neighbor had called the tip line and said, I think I live next door to this guy. They made a bust of what John would look like 18 years after the murder, and it was like I identical to Robert slash John because it was him but it was a neighbor that called in and so the police they checked out this tip they got Robert slash John to come into the station and they you know interrogated him but he he stood by his story he said no I'm Robert I studied here and I've got this beautiful wife and all this kind of stuff and so they let him go but they kept him on the radar right and in early of 1990, they brought him in again to the station on like some petty driving charge and they wanted to get his fingerprints and they matched his military records, which then like uncovered his true identity as John List. He confessed to everything. I mean, there was no point in hiding now. Uh, he 
yep, confessed his poor wife, Dolores. She, like, she had absolutely no idea what had happened. He had spun her the same lies and, like, she believed him. Why wouldn't she? She loved this guy and he obviously loved her. It was a very different type of relationship to him and Helen. Um, the trial happened. He, again, recounted the financial hardships. He talked about Helen and her issues with alcohol, her health issues. He then brought up that she was actually dealing with syphilis as well and was angry because that was that's an STD. Like, And she got that from her first husband. Um just trying to get any kind of pity that he could. He pleaded guilty by reason of insanity and he tried to use PTSD from the army, but the, the court was like, nah, not having it. John was convicted of five counts of first degree murder. And the judge said, quote, John Amel List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, five months and 22 days, it is now time to give the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, John F. Jr., and Frederick List to rise from the grave, end quote. And he was given the maximum sentence, which he served in a New Jersey prison. And then John died in 2008 from pneumonia at 82 years old. He did multiple interviews over the years before he died. And to the till the day he died, he believed that he was going to go to heaven and be reunited with his family. So, yeah. That's kind of the story of John. I know it was messy. I know it was kind of all over the shop, but John was just a religious nut who saw no other way to save his family's souls, which is really sad. The story has been subject of documentaries, short movies and books, but not not really as many as, say, like our Jeffrey Dahmer or our Black Dahlia, who we've already spoken about. But still, what a story. I do apologize. It was all over the shop. I've just I've just come off leave from work and I'm back on tonight. So my brain's a bit funny, but it's fine. It's fine. But thank you for joining me this week. Uh, I hope you all stay safe out there, make good choices and please get in touch with me if you had any thoughts or feelings or questions about the show today. Uh, stay safe and I will catch you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime.